Today, you have a chance to become a premium member of the podcast. Click one of the premium membership levels and you can get everything from a free book by an ag arts artist to free postcards to extra bonus interviews to the chance to have a piece of writing critiqued by me and a free workshop or reading by Mary Swander. So go to those show notes, scroll down and click to become a premium member. Thank you so much for your support. You never know who's going to tap on the glass window or walk through the door of the Agart studio. Today we bring you a conversation with Christopher Weatherly, a social worker getting his PhD from Washington University. He was in town working with the family counselors a few doors down the street and researching farmers' mental health. He saw our sign, came in, and we chatted about a topic that may seem confined to an isolated population, but one that has broad resonances in our national food system. So this is our first of a series of person-off-the-street interviews, and Christopher Weatherly is our first person post-COVID, to walk through the doors of uh, the Ag Art Studio and tell me some interesting things about what he's doing in this area. So welcome, Chris. Thank you. And obviously, first off, thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor. Um, so my name is Chris Weatherly. Um, I'm a licensed clinical social worker, uh, which is also could be known as a mental health professional. And um, I'm also a PhD candidate, uh, meaning I'm working uh, towards finishing my dissertation, which I'll be doing around August. And so, um, in short, my research interests are the impacts of climate change on mental health, which is a very broad topic. And more specifically, I'm interested on the changing climate's impact on rural mental health and rural mental health care systems. And even more specifically for my current research, it's on farmer mental health. So um, I was in your area uh, a couple weeks ago, and I walked by uh, the uh, Ag Arts storefronts. And on a personal level, I'm very interested in the arts uh, myself. I love to paint. And it was just, um, I don't know, such a pleasure to see uh, the work that you were doing just from looking in the storefront, and I contacted you, and uh, here we are today. That's great. Well, what insights can you give us about mental health for farmers in particular, and then we'll go to the wider rural environment? Yeah, absolutely. I think in short, um, and fairly blunt, the mental health situation for farmers isn't doing quite well. Um, farmer mental health, there's higher rates of issues like depression, um, anxiety, substance use, and substance abuse, and uh, on a very serious end, suicide. 
Now, there are a lot of reasons and a lot of risk factors that are factored into um, these impacts uh, related to these outcomes. And we could talk about that. And one of those would be the weather and another would be the markets and the other would be uh, the changing agricultural uh, context. Um, But in general, farmer mental health, uh, we would say this would be an at-risk population. And I know we'll get into more of the rural context, but it's important to to bring up first that um, the rural mental health context is very different than the urban mental health context. And a lot of the mental health systems we have designed, a lot of the research that we have done regarding mental health and mental health care have been centered around urban environments. And um, there's a lot of unknowns outside of rural environments about what the mental health care scene looks like in rural environments. So how is it different in rural environments than urban? Yeah, some obvious ones would be, um, if we just look at mental health therapists, there are a lot less mental health therapists in rural environments. Some of these reasons are fairly practical. There's a lot less people in rural environments, and the rural communities are shrinking. Uh, Another reason would be that... um, sort of like a brain a brain drain effect where um, sort of the more specialized you get um, and the more training you get um, in rural health, sorry, in mental health care, uh, there's better paying jobs in urban environments. And I think another reason would be stigma. <laughs> um, while there's uh, a lot of mental health disparities in rural environments, um, there's this issue of stigma, which essentially means that admitting that you have a mental health issue is admitting a weakness. And this is especially more severe within men. And um, so this sort of plays out probably into the level of job security or job availability for mental health professionals in rural environments. Uh, The other thing is there's not a lot of investing in rural mental health care as well. There's a lot more investing in, um, in different types of mental health treatments in more concentrated urban environments. And if I could just quickly give an example, and I know we're moving away from, I'm moving away from farmers. This sort of goes into why I was interested in this, uh, this topic. Um, to be clear, I'm not from a rural area, but for um, a little over a year, I lived in rural Indiana and I worked in an emergency department where it was my job to assess people who were at their worst. Either they were psychotic or they were suicidal. And this um, involved a lot of children that were experiencing uh, severe suicidal ideations or who have attempted. Uh, Traditionally, if someone has attempted a a suicide attempt, um, they go to something called inpatient psychiatric care. There's not a lot of inpatient psychiatric care in rural environments. And so I would be sending children one, two hours away from their communities. And a lot of these children are coming from very poor or resource-depleted families. And these are families that didn't have time or resources to drive to these urban areas. So this mental health care treatment was a very severe and traumatic experience for a lot of these children, which you could see as an oxymoron. So that's a very specific example, but you could sort of uh, take that example and, and put it in different contexts for different populations and dental, different mental health concerns. Oh, totally. Uh, we have that same problem here in Iowa. I have a friend who's a physician in the Quad Cities which has a population of about 400,000 people, and there's one psychiatrist for the entire, and that's an urban area, that for the entire Quad Cities. And he's a internist, but of course he ends up handling mental health issues too. And 
he has to search all over the state of Iowa for a bed for a kid who, who you know, is suicidal. And he told me, you know, some days he has to send them to Mason City. Now, that's about a, what, three, four-hour drive from the Quad Cities, and their parents can't afford or don't have time to do that. I mean, this is a crisis, it seems, that we have here. And what I'm hearing you saying, it's reflected all over the United States in that way. I'm really glad you brought that up because I think one thing I'll be saying a lot in our time together is disproportionate impacts. This means that there's impacts felt all over, but they're disproportionately impacted for certain populations. Um, And so we're having a mental health crisis in our country for a lot of different reasons. Uh, Financial, uh, what we've gone through with COVID, there's a lot of different reasons why we're experiencing a mental health crisis. And one thing we're lacking are trained mental health professionals. So this is true all over the United States. This is true in my time working in an ur- urban environments, but this is especially true in rural environments. And I didn't really even fully touch upon some of the reasons about why this is the case as well. And the other thing you brought up is this issue of time. It takes a lot of time to drive to um to see a a mental health professional if they're only available in the city or if they're available in a rural environment, but that is one hour away from you. And time is a precious resource for everyone, and it's especially true for farmers. Right. And gas. I mean, I don't think people think about how much that costs a family, you know, to drive back and forth an hour commute to see a professional. So let's dig in here a little bit about men and farming and stigma. And I also wonder, you know, there's so many more women farmers these days. Are they having similar issues or how, how is this playing out? I mean, there's always been women farmers because, you, you know, people say, oh, she's a farmer's wife, but they truly are, you know, farmers. But there are now women who are doing the field work, doing the whole management of the farm and so forth. But Tell me about, I think we all recognize the stigma, but tell me what's under the hood of that situation. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, obviously, thank you so much for bringing up the very real fact that women are very much involved in agriculture. I guess I have to bring forward that my research has been focused a lot on men uh, for a lot of very different reasons, but I'm also obviously interested in these impacts on women and also the children of farmers as well. I think it's a very general statement uh, to say this, but everyone expresses their mental health differently. So these can be based on gender lines, these can be based on cultural lines, and sometimes even those can't be so clear. So what I'm saying are very general statements. They're not always 100% true, but we sort of see these patterns in research. And I saw these patterns as a mental health professional. I think it's safe to say that for men in the United States, um, me being a man, we are conditioned to not really, for lack of a better term, be in touch with our emotions. And we are conditioned to not want to express uh, when we are feeling unwell mentally. With that being said, we always express what we feel. We just maybe do it in ways that we don't expect. So when you look at something like drinking, when you look at something like smoking cigarettes, I'll be honest with you, drinking is a lot of fun. It's one of the best medications for feeling mentally unwell. It's just a medication that can have really awful and long-term side effects. So these mental health outcomes get expressed, but in a lot of cases for men, 
um, because of stigmatization, because of this sort of maybe you're taught it as young as a young age that if you express weakness, then you are punished or you are seen as weak. Then we are told not to do this. I also want to say another thing. Sometimes it's a very good quality to be able to push through problems. Stoicism, resilience, these are not always bad things. It just could weigh upon us. And sometimes that weight can build and build and build. And this could be felt in the family. This could be felt with children. And then when I was a mental health professional, I would see people after that weight broke them. And that's what I'm trying to prevent. I'm not trying to prevent people from not feeling stress. We all are going to feel stress, and farmers feel a lot of pride about the stress that their work entails. What I don't want is to see people suffer. And to be perfectly honest, I don't want to see people die because they are afraid to express how they feel. I think that weight upon them is a good topic. I have a another friend who's... Owned a, owns a newspaper, and it's been in his family for four generations. And he said, you know, during the farm crisis, I just, I just couldn't have much sympathy for the farmers. I thought, I'll oh, get over it, you know, sell your farm and move to Omaha and get a job in a factory. What's the big deal? And he said, now that my newspaper is you know, seeing all these challenges and threatened and I, you know, I might lose it. And it's been in my family all those years. And I have the weight of father, grandfather, great grandfather coming down upon me. I understand what farmers go through when they think they're going to lose their farm. So what's that generational pull? You know, I, I've, also toured the whole United States with a play on farmland transition, like who's going to get the farm next. And, you know, the pushback you always get is farm is a business. You know, it's just like any other business. Why does everybody get so hung up on the emotional impact of this generational pull? So can you comment on that? I think one thing that I thought of when you're bringing up uh, your story and your experiences was sort of loosely, but maybe not so loosely connected to why many farmers don't see mental health professionals. One of these reasons is they don't feel understood. Um, they don't feel, and when you don't feel understood, you don't feel heard and you don't feel seen. And as a mental health professional, I have seen a lot of people refuse to ever go back to a mental health professional because of this very severe um unhappy experience where there's a lot of assumptions. So one of these assumptions would be, it's just a job. And I can understand that assumption. Um, and as mental health professionals, we are trained to actually to try to tell people that so they could let go of some of the pressures that our culture brings on workplace culture. But this isn't the case with farmers. Um, all of the farmers I've talked to are either third or fourth generation farmers. It's to say that farming is a way of life. I mean, I almost feel cheesy or cliche saying that, but it's absolutely true. And the weight that farmers are carrying are not just the weights of supporting their family and supporting their livelihoods, but they're feeling that intergenerational weight that if they let the farm down, if they lose the farm, then they're letting go of this full generational line of folks that really keep them grounded to who they are. So I think that's the long and the short of it, that 
Farmers are feeling a lot of weight, but when we say farming is life, as mental health professionals, you know, just sort of like I said, we want to try to tell people to maybe let go of that. But in the case of farmers, I don't think that's such a good idea. I think it's very important to understand that just because they're carrying this weight, this weight gives them a lot of meaning. And um, they may not know what they would be without this profession. Oh, that's right. And we, uh, when you came into the studio, we talked about farmers of color, you know, uh, Native American farmers, African American farmers, and what a raw deal they've had for the history of the United States and trying to have land access, you know, hold on to their land, make a inroads into having a profitable farm, um, getting grants and loans from the government. There's just been a multiple, multiple problems there. And you said, I'm, I know all of that exists and I acknowledge that. And you said, I, but I'm studying the straight white guys out, out in the cornfield. And, you know, I think this is a underserved population that, you know, we do tend to just think, oh, that's out there, ho-hum, and they have all the privileges. But um, what I'm hearing you say is, no, they don't. They're up against all of these challenges and they're underserved in terms of the, you know, the help that is there. They have this weight upon them. And what the scary thing for me is I lived through the farm crisis in the 1980s and I saw suicide prevention hotlines pop up. I, 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 I was just stunned when that was happening. And I'd open up the newspaper and there would be another um, farmer found in the barn dead. And now I'm hearing that that's happening again. So I'm wondering what are all the forces that are coming down upon them? It, 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 weather is certainly weird and, and, you know, a huge force. Economics is huge. We've had this massive consolidation of farmland in, in the last 10 years even. And um, throw in a pandemic and, you know, maybe we've ratcheted up to that uh, farm crisis level again. But um, what do you think about the straight white guys and all these, <laughs> all these forces upon them. One of the most tough questions, not just that mental health professionals ask themselves, but philosophers since the dawn of time is why do people die by suicide? It's a question that we're always seeking to answer so we can prevent suicides, but there's always a lot of unknowns, um, but we can look for general patterns and from these general patterns, we could look for ways to intervene in both a very micro way, meaning intervening, say, like in an emergency department, like I like what I did, but also in a more macro way, like at policy levels. So to answer fully, why do uh, farmers, white rural male farmers die by suicide would be a difficult task, but I can do my best. 
For one, you can look at very generally uh, the rates of suicide across the populations in the United States, and you could see certain trends. One trend would be that indigenous populations have one, if not the most highest rates of suicide for a variety of different reasons, including, again, to be blunt, a history of genocide. Uh, Suicide rates are rising in young black men, and the population with one, if not the, the most worst rates of suicide, is older white men, just in general. And there's a lot of reasons for this. One reason I would say is that because of toxic masculinity, the sort of way we define what a man is in America, you are nothing if you are not a provider. And so in my clinical practice, I, I won't go too deep into specifics because I would get emotional, but I experience people die by suicide, a lot of men who die by suicide after, say, a stroke or after retirement or after an event that they felt took away every part of who they were. And they are defined so much more by what they can quote-unquote provide. And we should not be defining our ability to provide by how much money we could give our family and our ability to love is, is very important. So I think you may be starting to get at where I'm going at with farmers and some things I've talked upon earlier is that there's a lot of forces that are happening either by changes in our climate, um, either by changes in the corporatization of farming that are making a very specific subset of farmers Um, these sort of middle-range farmers having much more difficulty staying afloat. So what you're seeing is a lot more farming buyouts. You're seeing a lot of people failing, and I put failing into quotations because this is what they define as failing. And this is um, this sort of break, this pressure, and everything we've talked about um, leads to this sort of final piece that is very important when you're looking at why do people die by suicide. It's because they have access to means. Access to means include things like chemicals, but in this case, we're looking at guns as well. So um, I hope I summed up that I didn't do it as much just, enough justice as I can, but there's sort of a lot of interlocking systemic factors on both a broad scale, like what's happening in the economy, what has happened with the pandemic and supply chain breakdowns, or we're looking at in a more meso local level with sort of the breakdown of the mental health community within rural areas. We're also looking at shrinking communities in rural areas for a lot of different reasons. We're looking at an aging farming population. And when you get to even more micro or more specific ways, we're looking at things like access to means and uh, farmers having very difficulty feeling understood in the mental health care system. Uh, that's excellent. Fred Kirshenman, who is my co-founder of AgArts, he was a very famous farmer, and he was the director of the Leopold Center at Iowa State University. He, he told me that the mid-sized farm is under the most stress in the economy and the situation that we have now. And that, these are the farmers that I think you're talking about. It's the farm that people don't think about, the 300-acre, 323-acre farm, even the 600-acre farm now is a mid-sized farm. And um, the small vegetable farmer that's surviving on five or 10 acres, even two acres sometimes, um, certainly has their challenges, but they have... um, in interesting ways, I think, better support systems. And then, of course, the big major farmers is where we're putting all of our 
putting all of our resources. And then you talked about, you know, this concept of toxic masculinity. And I also think there's a rural environment uh, toxicity, kind of a social toxicity that exists. I love the small town atmosphere and, you know, there's just like so many positive things to knowing everybody that you encounter on the street. But there's also the thing that all my students rebelled against, and that's that you know everybody on the street. And so you have that flip side. And you um, mentioned gossip. I thought that was really interesting, how that plays into mental health for farmers. How does that work? Yeah, and I, I could actually touch upon the toxic masculinity and relate it to the the topic of gossip. One is is that I almost don't like using the phrase toxic masculinity because what it's come in like the cultural zeitgeist. It, it, when you say it, some people take it as this is a war on masculinity, and and by no means am I waging a war on masculinity. The masculinity aspects of it are just are in fact very wonderful. It's just when you define certain aspects of it in a way that's unsustainable, that's when it becomes toxic. And what I mean, and sometimes I talk in loose generalizations, is that what I've seen as a mental health professional is generally our greatest strengths eventually become our greatest weaknesses. And that's not a bad thing. It's just sort of the nature of coping mechanisms. And um, we just are always trying to seek balance. So as I mentioned earlier, that ability to push through problems, I think is a wonderful resource to have. It's just a resource that sometimes gets depleted. Now, this is a very loose connection, but in rural communities, it tends to be that everyone knows everyone, and teenagers tend to really, really hate that. I think that's a very lovely thing. And I think that for a lot of folks that I've known that have moved from rural environments to urban environments, they very much miss that community. They very much miss those ties. They miss these ties to people, and they miss these ties to land. They feel untethered. They feel that they're floating in the wind, and they don't feel grounded. So I want to be clear that the fact that everyone knows everyone in rural communities is not a bad thing. It's a great thing. But when you mix that in to this idea that when you are feeling mentally unwell, then that means you are a bad or a weak person, then that quality doesn't really work. So I've heard a lot of examples of farmers losing um, a you know hundreds of livestock in a fire or they lose a field gets flattened because of a dairy show and they wake up and they see a whole community out with their combines, a whole community out with Fortless, a whole community out there without any prompting doing help. And it, I've heard this story so many times unprompted that it's just magical. So there's an example of a strong community being supportive in mental health. It's just unfortunate when you sort of cross that line to things like expressing anxiety or expressing symptoms of depression or expressing things like schizophrenia or mania or any other condition of mental uh, health and mental wellness then you see what I mean? There's sort of a line that gets crossed. And I think one way to address that is to simply destigmatize 
um, the concept of mental illness or feeling mentally unwell. So, um, I, yeah, I hope that made sense that whenever I say things like toxic masculinity or that there's sort of this like gossip culture in rural communities, I never want to make it sound like I'm denigrating certain aspects of people's experiences and lives that actually have been a saving grace to them. It's just I, I want to address some of the aspects of it that could become problematic and harmful. Right. I think it's, you know, a natural outgrowth of a tight community. You know, oftentimes, well, I've lived in both r- rural and urban areas, and the urban areas, you, you know, my experience is you have community, but it's it's certainly not as tight because you're spread out all, you know, the people that are your kindred spirits are spread out over, you know, a whole city. And in a small town, you have proximity. They're right next door to you. Yeah, so you are also an artist, Chris, and Ag Arts is, you're really, you're really a wonderful artist, and Ag Arts is all about bridging the rural and urban divide and finding the intersection, finding ways that we can dialogue and work with each other through the arts. And... Can you explore that topic a little bit just personally for you? Or? Yeah, I'll, I, I'm actually really uh, grateful we're going to have this conversation because I'm curious to learn more about your experiences as well. So I'll just speak from a very, very personal experience. One reason I'm interested in the topic of mental health is, you know, I've been through some things in my life and I felt very alone and I felt, you know, not understood. And, um, you know, some experiences growing up, uh, and I won't get into specifics, but they're very hard. And I sort of felt very physically and mentally the effects of not being able to express how you feel. And um, I'll just put it at that. And um, I think one reason I became a mental health professional was that there was an art teacher I had, and I'll try to make the connection in a minute, that just, I, I won't even try to explain how they did it, but they just so effectively explained what art is, and it's about expressing your expressions. And... I, it's just such a wonderful thing. And I remember one of the first paintings I ever did in that class, I felt such joy and I felt such wonderful emotions. And um, for most of my life since then, I've sort of kept that private, actually. <laughs> I uh, never pursued art in a professional sense because I never wanted it to be anybody else's but mine. But as I move forward into my life and into my career uh, of really, um, you know, working to be a mental health professional, you know, you feel the weight of, of the empathy that you, you know, employ in doing this work. And you need to have uh, outlets to, to express how you're feeling, to express, and sometimes when we, we don't really know what we're feeling, so to express that ambivalence and to put it into things that words can't quite explain. And art has been just my... Um, my best friend um, for for most of my life, for all of my life, I would say. And I, what I want to say is art means something different to everyone. Every culture has art. Art could be movements. Art could obviously be television. Art could be painting. Art could be singing in the shower. Art could be anything. We're all expressing. And a really quick aside, one of the only, if not the only, mental health treatments that's truly cross-cultural is something called creative therapy. This is where you employ the arts in therapy. And this is especially helpful for people experiencing trauma because expressing a traumatic impact through words can feel very violent and unsafe and expressing it through any sort of creative endeavor um, can can be really healing. So 
anyways, um, one of the ways that we connected is when I saw the storefront and I reached out to you, I sent you a painting that I painted of myself. Um, I, for a couple days, I worked on a hog farm and um, I was rounding up these, you know, 300-pound hogs to be sent to slaughter at one of the uh, local um, factory plants. And, um, you know, it was an experience. It was really helpful for me to see where our food comes from. It was really helpful to see what industrial agriculture is sort of doing to the way that we eat and the way that we consume meat. And, you know, in some ways it was very troubling for me. So I tried to paint myself um, rounding up these hogs. Uh, I don't know how much to go in here, but, you know, I was trying to, it allowed me to sort of sit in a meditative stance to think about these hogs and their lives, to think about my place, both in my research and in my place as a, um, I'm not a vegetarian, so just sort of really consider my role um, in these animals' health and well-being, and la da 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 da. I don't know. I could keep going, but I, um, it, yeah. The long and short of it, it's just been a way t- for me to express uh, sorrow, joy. Uh, but for me, most definitely, it's led me to find a way to express uncertainty and ambiguity, where I could find a way to express something that I can't quite land on with words. Well, it's a very powerful um, piece, and all of that came all of those emotions came through to me i think what what art is really great is when it does capture that ambiguity of our psyche for other people well we've had no ambiguity about the pleasure it's been to have you on the podcast today chris thank you for joining us and i hope they're great connections for you with ag arts we're uh trying to set up a residency for you when you're um, when you're ready. And uh, that's what we do here. We put artists on farms and s- see what happens. And so far, we've had amazing projects. So uh, keep in touch. Come back to us. We'll try to support you. Thanks so much, Christopher Weatherly. Thank you so much. I'm happy to announce that Buggy Land is now part of the Iowa Podcasters Collaborative, a group of podcasters creating content related to news, culture, and more. We're organized by the indomitable Robert Leonard. This group arose from the Iowa Writers Collaborative under the leadership of Julie Gamak. Here I've joined the ranks of so many talented writers, including Pulitzer Prize winner Art Cullen, Douglas Burns, Laura Bellin, and Damon James. The Writers Collaborative is a network of Substack pages, each writer in his or her own realm, but all linked together. I've created two Substack pages. On the first page, Mary Swander's Buggyland, you will get transcripts of Buggyland monologues and interviews photos, and extra commentaries. On the second page, called Mary Swander's Emerging Voices, you will read young, diverse writers commenting on current social justice issues. Please subscribe. It's free, or if you care to, you can donate some money at substack.com. S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. And that brings our episode to an end. 
We were produced by Rick Brewer of Brouhaha Audio Productions in our studios on Main Street in sunny Fremartentown. We had support today and would like to thank the Cinepid Fund, the Iowa Arts Council, the Werner Ellithorpe Fund at the Oregon Community Foundation, and the Calio Levine Fund, and all of you who have sent us individual private donations. We welcome your support. Like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe and never miss a podcast. Become a member or simply go to our website, agarts.org, and hit that red donation button. See you next time. Ha ha.